Happy two thousand nineteen, Chief End listeners. Uh, it is Friday, January eleventh, and this is uh, episode number seventeen, if I'm counting correctly. Um, we're starting the year off with some resolutions because what's a new year without resolutions to break? Uh, I am planning on upping the podcast frequency. Um, I'm aiming to do one a week and you say, oh man, that's a goal that will quickly be broken because you didn't even average one a month. I guess I did. What, what is that? I mean, they might've, let's see. I'm looking at the list right now. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Oh, 11. And I didn't podcast since October 31st, and I think April was pretty jam-packed. I did like, oh, four in April. Um, so I'm treating this just like I uh, used to treat my weekly youth pastoring uh, sermon, which I'm sure bored several high schoolers in the southwestern United States to tears once a week. Um so yeah, I'm just blocking out time and I'm going to podcast uh, once a week. And I think the reason that I was unable to uh, podcast frequently in the previous year was I was I felt like I was running out of material because as I've said a couple times in this podcast, you know, there's only so many critiques you can make of the modern church. Um, before you just start sounding like a broken record. And that doesn't sound like fun to me. Uh, because I remember my dad's 1980-something record player that uh, my sister and I scratched beyond uh, recognition. I think there was an Elvis Presley album that uh, really went a little south. Maybe an Andy Williams one as well. And I'm not sure why I'm getting... There was also an Anne Murray one. But I'm, I, I want to say I'm not sure why I'm getting... This is the fifth spam phone call that I have received from Ontario, Canada. Canada? Canada today. Um, I know my wife has some relatives in Canada, but if it was important, they'd leave me a, a voicemail, correct? Um, which reminds me of the 90s. You'd hit the little play button, and like the tape would play back, and you could rewind it. That was pretty funny. Um, anywho... Uh, there's only so many critiques. Dad's broken record player scratched up. Uh, but what I've decided to do is simply a podcast. Uh, things that I'm reading and things that I am reading and experiencing in my own uh, personal Christian walk. Just a closer walk with the Lord. Grant it to me is my plea. Um I think that's a song. So, you know, it's really interesting. I never shared the story. Oh, I'm also podcasting in the wild right now. So you might hear like cars in the background. Um, this particular podcast is brought to you from the gym parking lot uh, where two of my older children are currently involved in a four hour basketball practice. Um, so I was working at a, a local coffee shop uh, doing some of my other work that actually I get monetarily compensated for and decided to come back to the gym to podcast. So if you hear a noise in the background, that that is what it is. And there's a dude skateboarding by smiling from ear to ear while looking at his phone. 
that is quite the multi-talented uh, endeavor right there. Man, that guy is pretty good. Balance, focus, nice white toothy grin. Kind of like Lionel Richie. Oh, look at me tying, tying previous podcasts in. Hilarious. Um, at least to me it is. So what am I talking about? Oh, so I'm talking about, I'm podcasting about things that I am reading and things that I'm experiencing in my daily walk uh, over just on a week-to-week basis. And that's what I was saying. The Just a Closer Walk with Thee, Grant It it To Me, Jesus is my plea. Is that the word? The lyric? Um, It's a story probably 14 years ago. Man, time goes by fast. I'm getting so old. I don't even want to look in the rear view mirror right now. He, the crypt keeper just stared back at me. Um, and strangely, he had the same haircut as I do. So, yikes. Um, getting old. Getting old. The crow's feet starting to show. But you know what? Proverbs is chock full of a bunch of uh, loosely. <laughs> There's a little bit of hope in the Proverbs for old people. You know, hey. Your gray hairs show that you have wisdom. And, uh, you know, your eyes may fade, but uh, the eyes of your soul are strong. So I'll hold on to those things, even though I'm not even sure if they're that true. Um, but it was it was 14 years ago. I befriended a Mormon. Um, I should probably do podcasts on my Mormon experiences. I think I've, I've, I've been officially blacklisted by the LDS missionaries because we have not had one. Um, come to our door in at least three years, and I see them in our neighborhood constantly. And the last time they came to my door, um, and it's been the thing that I've told LDS missionaries for years, but the last pair that came to our door at our new address, first time they showed up, um, they knocked, and they introduced themselves as Elder whoever and Elder Tweedledee and Tweedle Elderman. Uh and, you know, they're pristine white shirt and their slacks and their bicycle helmets and whatnot. I just opened the door and I said, hey, gents. I said, I already know what your pitch is. Uh, and I'm just going to give you a little gospel rundown that would benefit your soul if you actually listened to this advice. I said, you need to turn away from the false teachings of Joseph Smith. And you need to start Googling the doctrines of grace. So... Turn away from your works-based religion, which I know is crushing your soul. And if it hasn't crushed it yet, it will as you continue to age because you're going to come face first with your depravity, which all of your burning in the bosom is not going to solve. So you just need to Google the doctrines of grace. You need to Google a handful of scriptures. And I gave him a little three by five card with some scriptures on it and, uh, you know, you need to read about the Reformation, you need to read about Martin Luther, you need to read about salvation by faith alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. Um, so yeah, thanks. You know, if you do that, maybe I'll see you in heaven. And if not, well, happy trails. Happy trails, folks. So that's the kind of... <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's kind of been my approach to LDS missionaries uh, since having a nine month long discussion with a Mormon, um, who I befriended in college. We had a business school class together and I found out he was a Mormon and I said, Hey, 
I said, listen, I said, I've had conversations with missionary elders at least eight or 10 times. And I said, their pitch is always the same. They follow the same script. In fact, my grandfather, God rest his soul, uh, gave me the Mormon missionary uh, handbook that an ex-Mormon had confiscated, smuggled out of the church, uh, the LDS church, which sounds like it was the equivalent of like smuggling out, um, smuggling out like nuclear secrets from Iran or something. I mean, it sounded like it was a covert operation in order for him to get this Mormon missionary playbook. Anyway, so I have this thing and it's from the, I don't, I think it's from the sixties and it's just this like spiral bound 35 page booklet that shows, uh, what Mormon missionaries are supposed to do in order to walk people through their sales pitch, essentially. And every LDS missionary that I had spoken with up until that point um, of whenever that was, 2005, when I met this guy in this business school, school class, they followed the script verbatim. And so the last couple sets of missionaries that, that I spoke with, I, and we would invite them over to the house for dinner, you know, and I'd let them kind of go with their little pitch. And then, you know, I'd pull out the Mormon missionary handbook and I'd say, you know what, guys, I said, I'm just curious. I said, you know, I don't know if this is like top secret, you know, I'm going to get like, you know, thrown in Gitmo for this, but you know, I have your booklet and I'm just curious why you follow it to a T. Um, and they got really uncomfortable. And then I accused them of, you know, uh, I didn't accuse them. I, I, sort of maybe too bluntly stated that Joseph Smith was smoking crack cocaine and injecting himself with, you know, 18th century versions of heroin. Or was that the 19th century? I can never keep my stinking centuries straight. 20th century Fox was for the 1900s. So I guess if Joseph Smith was in the 1800s, that would be the 19th century. But was he in the 1700s? My, my LDS. Did I use the 1800s? Or was that Brigham Young? I think uh, he was 19th century, whatever, you get the point. Anyway, he was injecting himself with 18th or 19th century versions of heroin, the opi, the opi? Ooh, that just brought a whole new meaning to the Andy Griffith show. <laughs> Look at that little connection. Opioids. Hey, Ope, what's up, Pa? Ope and Paw. If you, if you haven't watched the Andy Griffith show on Netflix, you should because it's a it's a fun little microcosm, fun little glimpse back into the, um, I don't even know how to describe it. There's just stuff that happens on that show and you're like, people would be boycotting the crap out of the Andy Griffith show right now. <laughs> like, I don't think you can make it through a half an episode of Andy Griffith without people on social media calling for his head, calling for him to be fired, calling for them. I mean, yeah, it's just unbelievable. Unbelievable. Anyway, uh, fun times in Mayberry on Netflix, all seven, all seven seasons available, uh, with Barney Fife and Otis and Aunt B. Good times. The way America should be. <laughs> Anyway, so I accused the uh, Mormons. No, I didn't accuse the Mormons. I, I said that Joseph Smith and his visions and his gold plates that he stole or bought at some swap meet or whatever, 
actually happened. In other words, I said they weren't actually from God. They were, um, you know, he acquired them in some dubious fashion. And the visions that are inscribed on them were actually the, like, Egyptian god of sex. And I accused their, you know, inscription of supposedly God and the Holy Spirit, you know, on these inscriptions that he saw when he was tweaked out on 18th century meth or some, you know, cocktail of who knows what. Uh, and if you're a Mormon and listening to this, I'm I really trying not to be offensive. I mean, this, I'm just trying to uh, document the conversation that I had with these uh, last sets of Mormon missionaries. And I basically accused their God of, um, I, I, I think I even said that, dude, I point, I pulled out the picture and I said, look, dude, he's got, he's got a stinking, I, well, you know, I said, he's, he's, he's aroused. He has a boner. Um, and they did not take too well to that. Um, but I said, you know, come on, turn to the doctrines of grace, stop all this nonsense. And, uh, anyway, then I meet this guy, um, and we are assigned to the same business class project, um, which we ended up winning in our school of entrepreneurialism. It's an entrepreneur 400 level class. We had to do a business plan, business model, make a pitch. We won the thing. And then we didn't start the business because we were engaged with other activities. Um, so I, I told him, I said, dude, the pitch that I get from elders is exactly the same. And I said, I have no clue what you believe. Like, I really want to know what you believe. Um, and I said, I believe my, my, my suspicion, my deductions to this point are that you all try to get your foot in the door with similar language of Christianity but then all of the stuff that comes in with Joseph Smith and the doctrine of the pearl of great price and the doctrine of the covenants and all these things, they retroactively kind of undo all the stuff that you tried to get us in the door with. Um, so anyway, we, we agreed that we would sit down over the course of the school year and have candid conversations about what we all believed. So um, he and I and my wife and his wife, we would get together once or twice a month for dinner and we would discuss these things. And we found a book called How Wide the Divide, which was written by a Denver seminary professor and a BYU professor of theology. And they took up five common questions that uh, Mormons and Christians, you know, have beliefs on and they wanted to see how closely they believed on these things. So it was a, it was a nice experience um, from the standpoint of you know, we had, we had respectful discussions and I think we were sort of able to understand what we believed. Um, but it didn't, it did nothing to, you know, change my, my observation that, you know, all of the beliefs that they kind of backfill in through all of the LDS doctrines and, you know, supposed revelation through their prophets and whatnot, really sort of undoes whatever common ground we might have had at the very beginning when it comes to Christ. Uh, and then sadly, you know, I think as we didn't convert to Mormonism, um, I think they kind of wrote us off. It was like, you know, we were like almost a prospect to them. And, you know, as any good salesman would do, you know, you kind of tag your prospects as being, you know, on the hook kind of dead, cold, you know, no longer interested. And I think we kind of got the no longer on the hook prospect label and, you know, hey, peace, see ya.
And I even told him, and I've told other, I've told all the elders this who come and come to our door over the years. You know, I, I said, look, your pitch to me, okay, is that if I remain in my current state and I don't accept the LDS doctrines and I don't do whatever I need to do to become, you know, rise through your levels of eternity or rise through your levels of heaven, that the low, I'll end up in the lowest level of heaven. And that's better than this current life. So what do I have to lose? Like, that's a terrible sales pitch. Hey, Mr. Prospect, here's my pitch. But even if you reject it outright, because we can go in and baptize you after you kick the bucket, you'll end up in a better place than where you currently are. Well, that's a horrible sales pitch. And I've told him this. It's a terrible sales pitch. Whereas my sales pitch has a lot more writing on it. If you don't turn from your self-righteousness and trust in Christ and him fully, you'll burn in unquenchable fire. <laughs> like there seems to be a lot more meat on the bone, um, so to speak, in that particular uh, sales pitch. So anyway, why do I say that? Because I said just a closer walk with thee. Um, grant it to me, Jesus is my plea. When he invited me, this guy, when we were going through that book, he invited me to their, oh man, I wish I could remember the name. It was some fancy name. It was like a, it was like a quarterly meeting of all the men. Um, shoot, you Mormons that are listening to this, um, and that are not offended at this point need to email me podcast at chiefend.org podcast at chiefend.org. And you need to tell me what this meeting was. It's spacing my memory banks right now. Elders, the eldership meeting, the brotherhood meeting. It was some quarterly meeting that they had on like a Saturday night or a Sunday night at their temple. Or not the temple, it was a church. The temple was off limits to the heathen, um, which included myself. Um, But we could go to the actual church building. So I went with them and I went with him and we sat and, you know, we sang hymns. And that was the thing that really struck me is... They sang a couple of the hymns that evangelicals sing. And I was like, this is kind of weird. Like, we're singing to a different Jesus, in my estimation, of discussing with him. And yet it's the same lyrics, the same hymn. It, it was a bizarre experience. And what I took away from that meeting it was like, you know, it's a normal, it was like it followed the same format as, as any sort of evangelical men's Bible study, you know, group. They showed up, sat in the pews, opened up the hymns, opened it in prayer. Um, and then they had a series of people come up and talk. And the first people they had come up was a couple young missionary guys that were just getting sent out for their mission. And they were full of zeal and you know, zeal for their understanding of God, um, zealous for their missions, zealous to share their message with the world, zealous to do quote unquote good works. Um, and then they brought up some 20, late 20, early 30s guys to recount their previous mission from eight or 10 years ago. And they had less zeal. Um, but, you know, so they had some rose colored glasses as far as, um, you know, their experiences doing their mission. And then they had like a 50 year old come up and he kind of recounted and he was like pretty much at this point, not frozen, but he was, he was, you know, 35 degrees Fahrenheit. And then the last guy to get up and speak was this dude that was like partially dust. Um, 
you know, it was almost like Avengers Infinity War when people start disintegrating before your eyes. Like, I wouldn't have been surprised one bit if he would have just, like, half disappeared into dust and fallen over. It's like, well, he's 194, so, you know, wow. It's amazing he's even able to get up on stage. But he got up and rambled, and he just, he picked some obscure passage in the Pearl of Grey Price and just droned on lifelessly for the remainder of the service. And I thought, wow, if this is the end result of the burning in the bosom, it sure would appear that the burning in the bosom fades over time. <laughs> because the burning in the bosom was quite strong with the young ones. And it was it was almost like the opposite of the force in Star Wars, you know? The young Jedi's, you know, they're floundering and can't control this thing. And then you got Yoda and the, you know, Obi-Wan, although, you know, why why did why did Obi-Wan drop the saber and let Vader whack him. I don't understand that. I'll never understand. This is one of the dumbest things I've ever seen. Star Wars is so stupid. Anyway, that's a side note. Anyways, the opposite of that, you know, Yoda has got the force when he's old and he can like lightsaber and like, you know, fight count, whatever his name was. Count Chocula. Was that? <laughs> Yoda and Count Chocula's epic battle. Wait, now, was Count Chocula the guy from Sesame Street, or was he the Cocoa Puffs guy? Man, there's so many 80s childhood memories just, like, blurred in my head. Count, Count, Count Chocula was the Cocoa Puffs guy. Count, no, but the, the Cocoa Puffs guy was, like, the crazy lunatic bird, or bunny. Was he a bird? Kix was the bunny. Cocoa Puffs was a duck? A pelican. Cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. I don't know. I don't. What was that guy? Anyway, he would. But then he, why would he be? Oh, my goodness. I need an 80 nostalgia site right now. All this has nothing to do with. And you know what? I'm going to lose the train of thought before I even go down this rabbit trail. Why am I? Oh, count. Oh, so the force. Okay. Just remember the force. In fact, I'm going to write that down so it doesn't take me 49 minutes to circle back around like it has in previous episodes in 2018. 2019 is a new leaf. It's a new year. We're turning over a new leaf. We are remaining focused. As I go down an 80s Count Chocula rabbit hole, I'm going to write down the force Yoda as it relates to partially dusted LDS elder man. That would be amazing if that guy was still alive. That would be amazing. He'd have to be the oldest guy in the world by now. Dude, I should go back. I should buy a plane ticket back to that city and show up at that thing for whatever the meeting was called. Everybody thinks I'm LDS anyway. I'm blonde, have 19 children, you know, um, no sister wives. Thank the Lord Almighty for that. What a disaster. Like, who would even buy into that? Multiple wives? Like, I love having a wife. But no more comments on that front. Wow. Um, yeah. Anyway, that'd be amazing if that guy was alive. There's no way he's alive. There's just no way. He was already 20% dust. In fact, I think if I remember correctly, it might have been the late night burning in the bosom temptation that I was resisting, but uh, it appeared maybe 
that like some of his hair actually turned into dust while he was speaking. Like it just sort of like fell off and went like Mother Gothel. <laughs> so force. The Yoda force, as it relates, partially dusted off. Partially dusted LDS elder. What a note. If people ever find this like in a hundred years that you're like, hey, you know, we're going to go through. My great grandkids are like, oh, look, we found great grandpappy Mute's notebook. Let's see what he had. Force Yoda as it relates to partially dusted LDS elder. I think grandpa, great grandpappy Mute, great grandpappy, uh, he might have been smoking the Joseph Smith opioids. Which I'm not, I promise. Cocoa Puffs. This is just, I, I can't get around this. I need to know. The Kicks, Kicks guy was Rabbit. Cocoa Puffs. I'm looking at the box, and I don't know what that is. He's got a beak. Here we go, Wikipedia. Hook me. Cocoa Puffs is a brand of chocolate-flavored puffed grain breakfast cereal. Yeah, I'm sure it's just full of health. Um, essentially, Cocoa Puffs are kicks with chocolate flavoring. Similarly, Trix has been for most of his existence. So we've got Cocoa Puffs, Kicks, and Tricks. Maybe the Tricks was the rabbit. Oh boy. Why is anybody even listening to this thing? Um, it was Nesquik advertising. Here we go. Sonny the Cuckoo Bird. Okay, so he was a bird. Like with roller skates and a beak, and he's just kind of wild. Okay, so he was the cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. So then who the heck was the Count Chocula guy? Doop do 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 do. Um. All right, this is getting stupid. You know, I'm just gonna do one more Google. Count Cha Cha Chocula. Oh, Count Chocula was an entirely separate cereal. What? Dude, my '80s nostalgia quiz is just failing right now. Okay, well that answers that. So then, so then. Count Dracula must have been the guy on Sesame Street, which, by the way, if I haven't mentioned this previously, Sesame Street scared every last ounce of little boy courage that I ever had completely out of me. I hate Sesame Street. I have nightmares about that stupid show. Creepy puppets. And what kind of grown person gets inside of a puppet? Like, that's just got, like, creeper molestation kidnapping written all over it says the guy who dressed up in a life-size bear costume when he worked at the mega church. <laughs> I'll never forget when I did the, uh, the sh well, if I say the name of the school, it might give away which church I actually worked at. So we'll just call it the um, young, budding, aspiring pastor training school um, that lasted nine months to train you for a life of, of fruitful ministry. And part of that training program was that you had to experience all facets of the megachurch. So I had to work in the nursery. And I remember being 19 years old and chain, like in, the, in like the infants and like some little kids blowing out like chunky mustard in his diaper. And I'm like, what? I'm not doing this. Get this away from me. And I just, you know, pass them off to the moms that were in there. And they'd be like, oh, come here, little cutie. And I'm like, who would ever make one of these? Because they're disgusting. And now we have 19 of them, and I love every single one of them. And 19 might be an exaggeration. Um, 
but anyway, one of the things after the nursery is I got upgraded to, you had to go experience the elementary school ministry to see how that thing functioned. And they had this life-size mascot um, that was this ginormous bear. And I'm six foot seven. And this bear, when I got the costume on, I must have been seven five. I mean, this thing was ridiculous. The head was, you know, just stupid big. And it had a voice box. And you were supposed to put the voice box down and it would turn it into like a friendly little kid bear. So it turned my voice, which I'm speaking now, into like, hey kids, my name's blah, 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 the bear, and Jesus loves you, and come give me a hug. Um, but I also discovered that it had like a switch on it and you could rotate it all the way to the right and you could turn it into the Darth Vader bear. <laughs> And it was one of my secret pleasures to uh, turn that thing over to the Darth Vader voice and then to be like, hello, children, I'm the bear and Jesus loves you. And kids would be like, mommy, save me from the demon. Um, yeah, that was fun. I did that a couple times and I got rebuked for it. But man, that was fun. But the best part was one day I was, I was gallivanting around the... Uh, five square mile acre campus auditorium of this mega church. Um, and I wasn't paying attention to actually where I was going a whole lot because you could only kind of see down through like the, the breathing area. So you could see your feet so you didn't trample kids. But that was about all you could see. So, you know, I'm walking slowly and they're supposed to have a volunteer that holds your hand and leads you so you don't like, you know, knock over old people or accidentally crush some little two-year-old with a size 24 barefoot. Um, and so I'm not paying attention to where I'm going, and my I clip my head on this doorway, and the entire bear head like rips off backwards, and it's dangling down behind my back, and here's my human face right there, and this little kid in front of me just started screaming. Like I think he thought that his favorite little Darth Vader bear like got decapitated, and he couldn't understand why the Lord would do such a frowning providence in his young two years of existence. So he probably still has, um, I wonder if he's in therapy for that. I hope not. If you're listening to that, just know it was fake. Um, the bear was not real and there was no animals harmed in the production of that particular fiasco. So Count Chocula, bear, I don't know, I, the bear, I, at least I got the, the Yoda force note as it related to the dusty elder. So, um, all of that to say... That's where, that's where the elder story went, and then there was the bear story, and I should have made myself another breadcrumb so that little Hansel could get back to where he was going, because little Hansel has lost his way yet again, and he might end up in some witch's stew. Um, so yeah, basically, don't uh, become a Mormon. Um, oh, that's what the thing was. So it was the it was the reverse of the Yoda Force. See, aren't you so glad that I wrote that down? Um, I am. It was the reverse in that their whole thing is, oh, you feel the burning in the bosom. Well, as they went through this progression of young men to older men to dust man, the burning in the bosom was like extinguished entirely. And I thought, well, that's not a very good. Um... So their sales pitch is off point. There's 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 no there's no uh, consequence to avoid their sales pitch. And. Their biggest thing of just pray about it, that was their always their pitch. Just pray about it and see if you experience the burning in the bosom. Well, that old guy apparently experienced the burning in the bosom and it died a long time ago. 
So I'm not too sure that that's actually good demonstrable evidence uh, to support your your faulty premises. Premisi? Premises? Premises? Um, it is fun to do plural words with, put the plurals on things. Data, datum, premisi, alumni, alumni, alumnus. Um, there's some fun you can have with, with uh, plurals. Plurals can be funny. Or is it plurali? Plurai. Plural. Plurai. Who knows? Plurals. So... I wish I could hit rewind and know what I started with. Oh yeah, just this is the this is so this is what we're doing. So we're gonna turn to the thing of just a closer walk with thee, which gets to the daily stuff, weekly stuff that I'm doing and experiencing in my life. And we're gonna turn to C.S. Lewis's biography, Surprised by Joy. And I'm gonna read a section to you, which I read to our children um, a couple days ago. Quote. My mother's death was the occasion of what some, but not I, might regard as my first religious experience. When her case, she had cancer, was pronounced hopeless, I remembered what I had been taught, that prayers offered in faith would be granted. I accordingly set myself to produce, by willpower, a firm belief that my prayers for her recovery would be successful. And as I thought... I achieved it. When, nevertheless, she died, I shifted my ground and worked myself into a belief that there was to be a miracle. In other words, he was hoping that she would come back from the dead. The interesting thing is that my disappointment produced no results beyond itself. The thing hadn't worked, but I was used, I was used to things not working, and I thought no more about it. I think the truth is that the belief into which I had hypnotized myself was itself too irreligious for its failure to cause any religious revolution. I had approached God or my idea of God without love, without awe, even without fear. He was, in my mental picture of this miracle, to appear either... He, to appear neither as savior nor as judge, but merely as a magician. And when he had done what was required of him, I supposed he would simply, well, go away. It never crossed my mind that the tremendous contact which I solicited should have any consequences beyond restoring the status quo. I imagine that a quote-unquote faith of this kind is often generated in children and that its disappointment is of no religious importance. Just as the things believed in, if they could happen and be only as the child pictures them, would be of no religious importance either. End quote. Um, I read that to our kids and I've really been putting the full court press on them, so to speak, uh, on the importance of converting a catechism and sound theological categories and thought into a personal salvific, there's a good word for you for two 2019, salvific experience for them as it relates between their individual standing between their hearts, souls, and minds, and the Lord God Almighty. And 
I'm not too sure if it's sticking or if it's taking or how they're, how they're reacting to that, but you know, they're, they're 10, 12, 14, and 16 now. And it is quite apparent that with all of us, we are individually personally responsible with our standing before God. And that you're not a Christian because your parents were Christians. You're not a Christian because you attend a particular tradition of the faith. Um, you're not a Christian because some 20% dust guy, you know, baptized you after you died. Um, you're a Christian because you experience God's saving work a very personal, powerful level in your individual heart, soul, and mind. And so I read them this story and I said, you know, this is very common of the human condition to view God as a magician. Um, and I think, as I've said before, one of the most, the most obvious examples of this in scripture is Acts 9 with Simon the magician, who marvels at the power that is on display through Peter with the Holy Spirit and he wants a piece of it so that he can wow the crowds and presumably make money off of it. Um, so I read that to them and, and I thought, you know, this is good for them to ponder these things because if it's just, oh, Lord, help me get through this test or this phase of my life or this crisis or this, you know, season of challenging, you know, of education or school or whatever, um, they have they're going to be priming the pump so to speak to just simply view god as their magician and once he performs the trick they will discard of him um just as c.s lewis would have done if his mother would have been healed from the cancer or if she would have somehow been miraculously raised from the dead after the cancer ravaged every last living cell out of her body um so that was the application for our children, um, and it's been the application for the Food for Thought for me so far in 2019, is the specific words where he says, he, I had approached God or my idea of God without love, without awe, even without fear. And that captures what I've been really ruminating on since the last podcast in October, this whole notion of awe that I'm beginning to really be convinced that one of the uh, prerequisites, one of the requirements, one of the uh, indisputable, inevitable fruits maybe of being a Christian is awe. And we have lost the awe in the church. You know, we've reduced God in whatever tradition we worship in. We've reduced him to our comfortable categories, our comfortable vision and mission statements, our comfortable, predictable, repeatable, definable statements of whatever. And all of those statements seek to remove the mystery from God so that the uncomfortableness and the ambiguity of dealing with a powerful fearful God uh, doesn't unsettle us. And I don't think that's how Christians should be living. I think Christians should be unsettled by a powerful, holy, omniscient, omnipotent God. And yeah, so I, I think that awe, I think that fear, I think that these things are 
Um, I, I, I don't know what the right hinge word is. I want to say required, but I, I don't also don't want to insinuate that it's, you know, oh, it's, it's Christ's merits plus something. Just saying to, to live as a vibrant Christian, I think vibrant Christianity, um, wholehearted Christianity has in it a real, uh, tangible, tacit sense of fear and of awe and of majesty. And, you know, if God is just another, you know, show on your Netflix queue, you know, I would say, I don't know if, if you're living, uh, very vibrantly as a Christian, um, so maybe that's the the challenge to toss your way as we begin the 2019 year is, you know, ask yourself what what level of awe, what level of fear are you experiencing um, in your reading of the scripture, in your prayer life, in your worship life, in your church attendance and involvement, in your, you know, uh, being faithful in the community to, to live and to work and to love as a Christ follower um, you know, how much awe and fear is attached to that. And it would also dovetail quite nicely into a sermon. Um, if you ever want to hear good preaching, go to fourthpres.org and search for sermons by Rob Norris. Um, actually, I take that back. If you want to hear great preaching, go to fourthpres.org um, and search for Rob Norris sermons. And He's, he's, I believe he's Welsh and there's, for me at least, there's something about the Welsh accent that just feels like there's more unction involved. <laughs> the Welsh accent to people who have a reformed view of the faith is the equivalent of laser light shows um, at these modern hip uh, facilities. Uh it does something to to stimulate false affections for the Lord. There's more unction. There's more spirit when there's Welsh accents involved. Um, and I'm jesting partially. Uh, but he has a whole series on... Actually, I don't even know if those sermons are on there anymore because he retired and there are not all of his sermons are there anymore. So I don't even know if you can do that. Um, there, This was a sermon series he preached out of Joel. Uh, back in like 2010, 2011, which I have in my iTunes library. And that's where I was listening to them. But he has a, an amazing sermon called The Day of Decision. And if I said to anyone who's been around the church for any length of time, hey, listen to a sermon called The Day of Decision, you're going to instantly think, okay, have I made my decision for Christ? Yes, I prayed the prayer on this month and day at this event. And yeah, I've made my decision for Christ. But that's not at all what the sermon is about. And it's about God's decision. That one day God will make a decision about you. And I listened to that sermon and it floored me. And he says that God one day will make a decision about me. That scares everything out of me. Not just the little boy Sesame Street scares. It scares everything out of me that one day God will make a decision about me. And he says in there, and he, he articulates this through exegeting um, the scriptures in Joel 2, of God judging 
his people at that particular period of time saying, you have traded your sons for prostitutes and you've sold your daughters for wine. And Dr. Norris says that he concludes that God will make a decision about each one of us one day, partially based upon how we treat his people. And that is a very sobering thought to think, wow, that God will one day make a decision about us. And on the one hand, it makes me want to try to live even more um, devoted as a Christian. And on the other hand, it makes me want to run all the more fervently towards the covering of Christ and hide as fully as I can in his righteousness. <laughs> and I think that's the point. I think that's the point of God making these these statements, you know, that one day we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We will all be called to give an account. And I think it's to invoke in our hearts fear and awe and deeper trust and longing to hide in Christ's finished work. Um, so those are my takeaways. We're 45 minutes into this thing. Um, I'm currently debating how to broach a sensitive subject, um, which I'm sure we'll hit sometime in the next week or two. Um, and it just relates to moral failure in ministry, um, which I've covered previously, but sort of in a very snarky kind of, you know, arm's distance. So these are clown faces in other parts of Christianity. Um, but we personally have, uh, over the Christmas break, experienced um, a couple of heartbreaking um, instances in our particular family of faith uh, at our church. And yeah, I'm trying to figure out how to broach them, bring them up sensitively yet bluntly. Um, so yeah, be on the lookout for that. But at 46 minutes and four seconds, I think we'll close the first chief end of 2019 and wish you all a good near, a, a good near, a good near. Maybe that's what, New Year should just be near. Happy near. I like words. They're fun. Um, I don't like Sesame Street and I don't like Star Wars. Why? Why, Obi-Wan? What, what was the purpose? There was no purpose. You were just a distraction so that Luke could get away? I mean, if you had the ability to take out Vader, but I guess he, I, maybe he was just so shocked that he thought he killed him 30 years prior that he was just like, you know what? I cut both your legs off and both your arms and you still lived, so, you know, you win. Just go ahead and take me down. Maybe that's what he concluded. Or maybe he was regretting the fact that he didn't just hop off of his little getaway ship and, uh, you know, run down on the side of the lava river and just roll him. He could have rolled him in like a barrel of apples. He had no legs, no arms. What is he going to do? Brace himself with his tongue? And just run down the little slope. Just say, hey, it was nice knowing you, young Padawan, but you have disappointed. You have been tried and found wanting. Now you will become Vader brisket and just whoop, just roll him. Watch him tumble down the hill with his nubby, stubless legs. That is funny because it's not stubless legs, it's legless stubs. <laughs> oh, how I love words. 
roll him down the hill. You need to watch that episode. If you haven't seen Star Trek, watch that episode when it's on TNT on repeat for the 97th time this year. And just wait for that little scene when he's lying there. I hate you. Wow, that guy was full of hate. And you could see it when he was even a little kid with that floppy haircut. You could tell he was full of deceit. If Darth Vader, maybe this is where I'll pick up Star Wars. If Darth Vader is not the example of total depravity in mankind, I don't know what is. He married Queen, whatever her name was, Amialba, Ami, whatever. Natalie Portman marries her, superstar kid, rising star, you know, probably on the, you know, forces 30 under 30 list. And yet he turns into just a legless, armless, charred ball of hatred. And I still can't believe Obi-Wan didn't just go down there and just roll him like a keg of, keg of apples. Adios, and then he just sinks. No. Like Gollum. Why couldn't they just end him like Gollum? Read your Lord of the Rings, Obi-Wan. Adios.